Hey everybody, Michael here. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, the second to last one of the year. And I can't wait to tell you about what's coming for season seven. It's big, audacious and crazy and exciting. And uh, we will tell you about it at the top of the year. Um, But these last two episodes of uh, 2020 are this week, Fat Phobia, which you may have remembered an episode that we put out earlier in the season that dealt with some issues of fat phobia. And, you know, sometimes we don't get things right around here. We do our best. But in that episode, there was, we felt like there were some things that um, didn't get covered as we we're kind of starting to talk about that topic. And it was, uh, frankly, it was just a small cast of characters, none of who were fat themselves. So this episode uh, delves more into that subject. I hope you'll enjoy it uh, and hope some of the stuff that was not covered in the first episode we'll, we'll get to here. Um, one other final announcement before we launch into the episode. We've got a Christmas party, Advent, holiday, Christmas uh, celebration <laughs> that we'd love to invite you to. Uh, we're going to do it online and we're going to do it on Sunday, December 20th. Um, we're going to, Hillary's going to share some stuff. William and I are going to be there and share some stuff. We'll have some music. Um, just a nice little liturgist get together online holiday party for us, for the community. So we'd love you to join us. Go to the liturgist.com for more information and we will see you there. All right. Enjoy today's episode. Our world is built with stories. Sometimes these stories cause suffering by pulling us apart from ourselves and each other. The Liturgist Podcast helps people love more and suffer less by pulling apart the stories that pull us apart. So we're having a conversation today about fatness. And that feels important for a few reasons to me. Um, I'm becoming increasingly aware of the way that I have internalized fat phobia without even knowing it. And I'm becoming increasingly aware about how, even though I research body image and our relationships with our bodies, that 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 doesn't necessarily mean that I get to be the one to speak into this issue and know everything about it. And while that might seem obvious off the top, the reason that we're doing this episode is because I think we've all learned a lot in the last year about how much we should or shouldn't say as people who have thin privilege about fatness So we want to have this conversation in such a way that allows us to position ourselves differently and recognize where we are as hosts, people who are learning and in process and understand the complexity of this conversation. Because I think that the, the importance for me, at least in this is not only getting it right, but continuing to pull back and see the layers of what I don't know about bodies based on the way that our culture shapes 
what we think is ideal or normal or healthy even. So knowing that I'm, I want to disclose up front are, are kind of not knowing. Dr. Joy Cox, we're having you on the podcast today because we trust your voice in this area and believe you have some really important things to say and some ways of understanding that, that we can learn from. And so I think to situate the conversation, to start it is even just to ask what needs to be said about fatness. Like when we're having that conversation, what's important to know, what's important to name, what needs to be said? So first, thank you so much for, for having me on the show and, and giving um, me some space to, to speak on this. Um, I think that Oftentimes when the conversation is brought up as it relates to fatness and what needs to be said, um, I think first things first is that there needs to be a mindset about fatness as you come into this conversation, understanding that fatness is normal. Um, fatness is not demonized. It's not something that is abnormal. It's not something that is negative. Um, so kind of removing the negative connotations away from fatness as we have grown to know it. Uh, and that's everyone for the most part. If you live in the United States, you know that as a whole, as it relates to society and messages about fatness, um, that it is not welcomed. It is not preferred. Um, and so I think what we need to know about fatness or what needs to be said about fatness is reaffirming those ideas, right? That fatness is normal. Um, that fatness is not a personal failure. Um, that fatness is not demonized. Um, that fatness is not moral failure. Uh, cause I think all of those things kind of get tied into, um, the meaning of fatness when we talk about it. And oftentimes that's what people are reading when they are looking at fat bodies. When they see fat bodies, they see them as moral failures. When they see fat bodies, they see them as personal failures. Um, when they see fat bodies, there's all of these different stigmas that are attached to that and kind of coming to uh, coming to, to, to platforms and understanding that none of those things really are fatness, right? Fatness is just, <laughs> fatness is just fatness. Um, and we can use that term as a descriptor and kind of remove all of the other definitions that are so often associated with it. It makes me think of the schoolyard insults that people throw around and the, the fear of, so many of us growing up of being called fat as if this was a horrible thing and how we got taught so early on to fear or shame what is just a descriptor. Like you're saying, it's just this description of, of a body in the same way we would say tall, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, if you look at it, I guess research would, would support and say that, um, you know, at a very young age, we're conditioned to believe negative things about fatness. Um, cartoons kind of do that job for us. Uh, if you think about growing up as a child, um, the larger body individuals and in cartoons are typically bullies. Um, they're mean, they're antisocial, they're not gentle, right? So as kids, we are conditioned to think about certain bodies in certain ways. Uh, and, and it shows up 
of course it shows up in the schoolyard. Um, it shows up in, in, in the everyday lives that children have because those are the messages that they're receiving. And they don't have the critical thinking skills to say, okay, well, wait a minute. This may not necessarily be, you know, be correct. And if you live in a household where parents are reinforcing those ideas, um, yeah, I mean, growing up as a fat child is going to be horrible for some people. Um, but that comes from somewhere and that messaging is rooted in, you know, the messages that we get from society in almost every context that we live in. Uh, when, just as you were talking, it brought up some memories from childhood and, and body shame things. So like when you're a boy and you're not slim, you're called husky. And that's something I was called very particularly, but it wasn't just something I was called. I feel like there was sections of clothing stores. I remember having to go with my mom to department stores and like, okay, you, you know, you don't fit into this. You're in the Husky section. So I used to go get like Bugle Boy, which was really cool back in the day. Um, Bugle clothes. Boy. Remember Bugle, Bugle Boy? Boy? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was not in my mind in 20 years. Right? <laughs> you know, but they had some Husky sizes, you know, for the 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 kind of like preteen you know like boy um and i remember that being like a like a a source of shame mainly because it's like well some of it was oh you'll you'll thin out once you hit puberty right or there was there was so much negative connotations you you said we've been conditioned um that shows up does that show up a lot in not just cartoons but in the fashion industry um and also like what sizes are typically made available not made available and uh, yeah i would love for you to speak to that yeah so uh, yes uh in a in a very roundabout way sure i mean i think fashion one of the things you speak about right so like there was a husky section for boys if we talk about the difference between um accessibility as it relates to boys girls men and women right there was no husky section for um, for fat little girls, right? And so what I found myself having to do at a younger age was I was automatically graduated into the mystic section. And um, I kind of talk about this in, in the book that I wrote is that, you know, if you're seven or eight years old and you don't get to wear the pretty colors, right? Like I didn't have the the cute pink shirts and the purple shirts. I didn't get to wear like the pretty underwear for little girls anymore. Like I just graduated into those all cottony, lacy looking things. Um, you know, my, my colors became extremely bland and I, I dressed older because that was the only thing that would fit me at the time. Um, I think that we see that even today. Um, I mean, obviously there's some brands that have gotten better as far as being inclusive as it relates to sizing, but there's still a lot of places that people can go to shop if they are, you know, if you're a woman and you are over a size 24, um, you're going to have a really hard time shopping in brick and mortar stores, which means that the majority of the stuff that you order is online and that means like that that creates so many barriers to your everyday life right if somebody calls you out and they're like girl you want to go out tonight you like hold up let me let me order something like that's not how it works right and so people have to really proactively take steps to make sure they still are able to kind of have this life of quality um as you know, as they grow in size, um, and I would imagine. I mean, I, there's there's some accessibility as it relates to men, um, more accessibility, should I say, um, for men than for women, because larger male bodies are more accepted than than um, 
than than female bodies. Um, but definitely in the fashion industry, your styles change. The 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 type of clothes that are offered change, um, and then the prices go up, right? So we often talk about like the fat tax too, right? Like why does it cost me seventy dollars for a pair of jeans when they're the same? <laughs> they're the same fabric as everyone else's and nobody else pays additional prices from small to extra large. But once you get past an extra large, there's an there's a tax, right? You're paying extra money for a 1X or a 2X or a 3X. Um, and so all of those things kind of play into fashion and accessibility as it relates to clothing. And the fat tax, it sounds like is financial, but also I'm thinking about the developmental things that happen when you lose the ability to have the same kind of quality of patterns or fabrics as your peers, like what, what does it do to be, uh, catapulted into this different developmental stage or to have people appear, um, assume that you are older because of how you appear and missing out perhaps on what it means to be and dress like a kid. Yeah. I mean, I think for myself personally, um, we, we talk about, um, as it relates to the black community about what it is to be mammified, right? Mm -hmm. So to be a mammy, um, the person that takes care of everyone else, um, and is not necessarily expected to take care of themselves the same way, right? So like that becomes your role in society. And I could say that growing up as a kid, that was like a role that was like handed to me, right? I became the wise one amongst my friends. I was the one that had to look out for everyone else. I was the one who had to be the most responsible. Um, I'm a middle child. I have one sister who's older than me, one sister that's younger than me, but I was looked at as the leader. Uh, and so a lot of the responsibility that was put on me because of, you know, if, 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 if it was just me wearing clothes differently, right, there was a there was a an expectation, right? I couldn't run and play like all the other kids. I couldn't do these other things. So of course I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be the leader. Um, I'm the one who you know I'm expected to know how to cook food well, hmm. right? Because um, that's a you know that's a stereotype that's associated with fat people that you know we must eat a lot, so we should know how to cook. That, that, that's the least that we could be doing for ourselves that we're eating well, especially um, black women, yeah. Right, right. Especially black women. Um, and so those roles being placed on me and not really having, I think, the liberty to fully embrace um, what childhood would have looked like otherwise. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it takes a toll on people emotionally. You kind of grow up looking out for everyone else um, and kind of leaving yourself behind. There's a lot of your own passions and desires that you've been told over and over again that you can't do or that you're not supposed to do, right? So if you're a fat person that was really into sports, um, I guarantee you that if you talk to, to those individuals, they probably were told that they can't play sports, um, not, a, not in the body that they have, right? Um, and so what does that do to fat people who are interested in um, in dancing? What does that do to, to, to fat people who are, you know, interested in, in other genres of sports that typically aren't um, represented by larger bodies? You find something else to do, right? You kind of stuff that passion away and you hope that you find something that gives you um, as much joy or you become the rebel and you fight against the grain. But even that comes at a cost, right? That comes at a price and you're spending additional emotional labor, um, just working um, and fighting against other people's mindsets to do the things that you actually desire to do. So there's a lot of limitations and a lot of barriers to that um, where 
people in larger bodies have to find ways to navigate um, and not just for their peace of mind, but also for their safety. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm instantly thinking about access to arts. Like you're saying, Um, you know, if you live in a community, if you're, um, if you're a black girl and you're fat and you live in a community that is maybe suburban or or primarily white, you're not going to have access to some of the types of, artistic things like ballet or things that are traditionally viewed as like thin, you know, and, and I instantly just thought about Debbie Allen and her school of dance out here in Los Angeles, you know, or many schools like hers that, that allow girls of all sizes to participate in many different styles. But that's just, it seems like that's such a rare thing. Right. Such an anomaly. And I think even in speaking to that, once you get out of that box, right? So after you leave Debbie Allen's school, right, you're still being faced with um, these barriers where people are like, okay, that's great. You did that, but you can't do that here. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, yep. like shout out to the people who are making, you know, making ways for, for stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, definitely the arts is, is a big thing. You have people who are larger body who can sing and who can dance and they'll never see the front of a stage. Um, they'll never be put in the forefront because of those reasons. Um, and that's something that, that they grapple with. I mean, I think we see that, you know, even as it relates to um, mainstream society and, and arts mm-hmm. now, right? How many people have you seen that kind of started out when they first came out, they were larger in size, but now they're super small, mm-hmm. like the pressure to change your body is there. And, and that's all, you know, that's often the story that's told. If you want to make it somewhere, you got to change your appearance. Um, and losing weight and becoming smaller is one of those things that, that become like a requirement. There's so much in culture that's said about fatness, usually it's put into, uh, it's usually about weight loss. It's usually about like health concerns and, and, and how to not be fat and stuff like that, like you've been saying. Um, you know, Hillary's first question about what needs to be said. There's another side to that, which is like, what, what doesn't need to be said in the conversation about fatness? What at this point, um, where we're at culturally, where we're at as a human family, What's not helpful? Uh, I think the conflation between weight and health just isn't, you know, just not useful. Um, Also, like speaking, I think, back to the stereotypes of um, there's there's an assumption that people who are larger in size, they are the way that they are because they don't have the education. Uh, I think that's also problematic. I think if anybody has education about weight loss and nutrition, it's probably fat people because um, <laughs> it's given to us every day, 24 hours uh, a day without fail. Um, we're the ones who are always hearing about how we can change our bodies. Um you know, fatness doesn't make you. Uh, well, yeah. So this is another one. Like, so fatness and attraction. Like, we kind of got to toss that, I think, out of the window and stop, you know, stop saying or stop being surprised when you, when you see um, mixed size couples. Um, also, the assumption that, like, um, fat people can't pull attractive people or that fat people aren't attractive. Right. So so there's a lot of that um, I see. Um, 
usually on, on, on my social media, my feeds and things, people are shocked that like heterosexual relationships are happening where like the woman is fat and the man is like lean and he has a lot of muscles and it's like, well, how did that happen? Mm. And I'm like, what? what? Like, what do you mean? How did that happen? How did that happen? I, I think, you know, if I could speak personally about my own story, I very seldom ever. I mean, those are the men that are drawn to to me. I've never really had to. I've always been confronted by men who have that type, that body type. Um, and so there's like a misconception around um, what, you know, who's attractive, who gets what, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so those are kind of the big, I think some of the bigger things that come to mind, um, weight and health is kind of the thing that I think overshadows everything. Um, because that's usually the fallback to, you know, after people say that fatness isn't attractive, the next thing they tell you is that fatness isn't healthy. Um, and I think that there's been more than enough research that has been done, um, that, that actually debunks that um, and and why we don't speak about it, why we're not open about those topics or about what research finds. I think a lot of that deals with what we've accepted as a culture, but then also where our money is. Um, so I work at a medical school and I'm, I've been told by doctors that um, their administration confronts them and tells them that they have to ask individuals about their weight um, and write it on the chart because if they don't, um, then they don't get money for that, right? So there, there's additional money that's involved in saying that you did some type of weight counseling um, for the people who you see. And when we think about the ways in which um, fatness becomes political and all these other things are intertwined with it, um, fatness and health is like a big, a big deal, Um as it relates to a lot of the barriers that people face and a lot of arguments that are, that are around fatness and why you shouldn't be fat. And so I would say for sure, those are things that are worth leaving behind. So is there like a, a balance of as we talk about it and think about it because I, I love all of the way all of the things that you're pointing out Dr. Joy about all the ways that things get conflated health and weight get conflated in a way that it's it's oversimplified uh, in the last episode where we talked about some of this stuff we talked a lot about the uh, stigma weight stigma and how that is is you know detrimental to health as well. But because so much of this is talked about so poorly and people are treated so poorly because of their bodies, um, there's so much to be said as, as, as you, as you've been saying about how to humanize and value bodies as they are. But, you know, you also have, um, I pulled up the, the CDC here and there's, there's, medical things like that people who have obesity, this is from the CDC website, um, are at increased risk for many serious diseases and health conditions, including um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, gallbladder disease, uh, sleep apnea, 
um, many types of cancer, mental illness, clinical depression, body pain, physical functioning. So how can, is there a way to talk about it, to think about it in a way that doesn't necessarily dismiss any legitimate um, medical concerns, health concerns, but also values bodies as they are? Just I'm just interested in that sort of tension between um, so, I mean, I think so. And I think that, you know, I think the best way to kind of talk about this is not to put out statements like those, right? <laughs> I think some of this, right? Um, some of this is, you know, when you, when you start to do research, um, oftentimes when we look at the output that's been given to us as it relates to research reports, what we typically see are descriptive statistics. And this is like me not going like into a deep dive about research, but descriptive statistics are nothing more than your mean, your median, your mole, right? So you take the total number of something, you divide it, um, and then you get a high and a low and a middle. Um, and so oftentimes when we are talking about what research is saying, that's usually what's being purported to the public. What's not being purported to the public is the output as it relates to the actual statistical tests that are being run. And so when you see an, a, a write-up that says something like obesity is associated with, there's an increased risk, there's an increase increased risk for, right? That means that there's some type of statistical test that was ran. That would be the hope anyway. There's some type of statistical test that was ran. And nine times out of 10, what people are running are correlations. Now, if if you've grown up and you've taken social science classes, what people usually tell you, right, is that correlation does not equate to causation, yep. right? And so what that means is that obesity or fatness does not cause any of these conditions. They are simply associated with it. When I talk about correlations, what I like to talk about, right, is cousins. Because part of having a correlation is that when you run a statistical test, as it relates to a correlation, you're going to get a power, right, a number that shows the power of that correlation, which means if there's a power to the relationship, right? If the number is high, then we're talking about a high relationship, right? So if you have a high correlation between two things, we're talking about something being related like first cousins, right? So then I could say, you know, it's one thing if I say, you know, me and Lizzo are first cousins. You'd be like, what? Okay, so you're related to Lizzo. Okay. It's different if I say, yeah, me and Lizzo are, are related. Well, how are y'all related? Okay, we're seventh cousins. You're like, ah, seventh cousins. Like, where is that? Like, where exactly does that fall, right? How strong is that relationship? So one of the things that are not, um, one of the things that are often not talked about is the power of these quote unquote increased risks is the power of these correlations, right? So if you have, if you've done some research studies and your correlation comes out as 0.3, that's not very strong, which means that there's not a very strong relationship between quote unquote obesity and these other sicknesses and diseases. And so to date, we have all of these things that say, oh yeah, obesity is related to 
obesity is associated with. But you can't tell me the power that it's associated with. You can't tell me we know it's not cause. We know it's not causation. We know it's not any of those things. So then the question that I have is like, what skin do you have in the game to write something the way that you write it? Mm. Wow. Right. Like what becomes Mm -hmm. what becomes that foundation that you feel like it's necessary for you to write it the way that you do. And I think some of that deals with culture. Right. Some of that deals with how we've grown up and understood what fatness is and how it presents itself in society and why we see it as a problem. So how can we hold these two realities in one space and say, okay, it is possible That if you have a larger body, right, these are some things that you may want to look out for. Like, why can't we just be honest and say, okay, there's not very, there's not a real strong relationship between obesity and high blood pressure. Like it's there, but the relationship isn't strong. Like, why can't we just be honest about it? And I feel like part of the reason why we can't be honest about it, because culture doesn't allow us to be fully honest about it and definitely not the medical field. If we if we could really sincerely talk about how much money goes into the medical field as it relates to obesity treatment, right? Um, I mean, how do you feel about, you know, if you made $100,000 a year doing the podcast and there was something that was, you know, functioning in your podcast that, that if you knew it got out, 70% of your income would be wiped away. How would you feel about somebody coming out and saying some stuff about it? <laughs> right? Like there would be there would be certain things that you would undertake to make sure that there's a cushion, right? Mm-hmm. That it didn't mm-hmm. hit people as hard. And so, you know, um, it's really interesting because a few years ago, the CDC wrote, <laughs> the CDC came out and published about weight stigma and said that weight stigma mm-hmm. is more harmful than weight itself. Right. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it's really interesting that when you go to the website to learn about obesity, you don't find that. Yeah. What you do find is all these listings. Right. And so my thing is like, how do we hold those two spaces together? We tell the truth. Yeah. Right. How do we hold those two spaces together? We, we we state facts. Right. Because we as a researcher, you really shouldn't have any skin in the game. Hmm. The only thing that you really are doing is purporting what you find. Um, but we find that that's not the case when you have certain people that are sponsoring, you know, the work that you do or, you know, when it's your job that's on the line. And so all of those things taken together, it's like. I mean, that would be my recommendation. Just state facts. State facts. We'll be okay. Right? <laughs> that is good. So, <laughs> so are you saying are you saying that the facts of these of the studies actually that it's there's no um causation between all these things, diabetes and heart disease and stuff with Obesity? Are you saying there is no? Are you saying it's weaker than there than it feels on the website? Or what? What do you? What factual? I'm saying that if something says that there is an increased risk, they're already telling you that it's not caused. There is no causation, right? Because if there was a causation, they would just say that obesity causes these things. The fact that they say that there's an increased risk and they can't tell you how that risk is increased is a problem. Right. And the CDC has enough people who are well versed and well educated enough that they can articulate that. There's a reason why they choose not to. We should ask why. Right. We should ask why. And it's not, you know, 
it's it's interesting because I think sometimes when people take this tone, it comes off as us being defensive. But my life is on the line. You understand? Like whenever I go to the doctors, mm-hmm. like they tell me that same stuff that's that that's that the CDC has written out, right? They're telling me that it's it's my weight that's causing these issues and they're not looking any deeper. Right. So they're not looking past, um, you know, there is no genetic testing as it relates to me. Nobody's referring me to um, to a physical therapist if I hurt my knee or if I dislocate my shoulder or something. They're going to say, no, you need to lose weight. And so now I have to live in pain without getting the same type of care because of something that the CDC put out when they know they could have put out something different. Right. And so, um, you know, there are numerous there are stories that kind of talk about this. A woman, she went to the doctors because um, there was she was having problems with her stomach. The doctor told her to lose weight. Come to find out the woman was full of tumors. Right. So how do we how do we get to this? You know, how do we get to this place? Why do we feel like, you know, if you see a fat body that it's the fatness, that's the problem. And part of that is because of these types of reports, this type of stuff. And we feel as though we don't have a reason to doubt the CDC. We don't have a reason not to trust these organizations. So doctors read that and they say, okay, this is what the CDC said, right? This is what my doctor told me. This is what the person that trained me told me. I have a reason to question that. And we take it. Mm -hmm. And then we share it with other people, right? Um, But I'm the one at the end of the day as the patient that winds up losing Right. Because nobody's going to listen to me and nobody's going to hear me whenever it counts the most. And so that's my biggest concern. We have all this stuff going on with COVID right now. And they talk about how there's this increased risk with people who who are heavier, um, who are who are in a larger body. So if I come to, you know, if I come to a place and I'm like, I'm out of breath, I'm short of breath. And they say, oh, it's because you're fat. You need to just go back home and lose, you know, work on that, lose weight. That's why. And then. Three days later, I'm in the ICU because nobody wanted to test me for COVID. Nobody wanted to, you know, wanted to look any deeper past my fatness. Um, Then these are the issues that we have. Right. And so I'm not saying that, you know, things are not. I'm saying that things are not clear. Right. And I'm saying that if you have the summary, then you have the source. Right. Like if you have the summary, then you have the source as the researcher. If you have the summary, then you have the source because you had to get the information from somewhere, which tells me then you have access to the outputs of all of those numbers where you're getting your stuff from. And why not add that? Because that only helps the public in the long run. And this is where we get into racial disparities, right? Like, and all sorts of disparities when it comes to the medical care and treatment. The reason why they're saying, why, why do black women um, have higher uh, uh, infant mortality rate, you know, uh, compared to white women? And all these issues is because the weight stigma, the skin stigma, all these things are playing into people's perceptions and why they don't take black women's pain seriously. Um, or they, right. they put it off into to something else. When we talk about systemic racism in the health field or in Medicare and, and COVID related, just like you're saying, uh, COVID is disproportionately impacting black and brown people. But guess who is not believed <laughs> when they talk about their pain or their symptoms mm-hmm. um, or they look at you and say, no, it's just because you're, you're fat. Therefore, you just need blah, blah, blah. And there are, I've heard testimonies of people who have actually uh, died because they went to the doctor because if something was wrong with them 
no one mm-hmm. thought, hey, let's give them a COVID test. Turns out they mm-hmm. ended up getting COVID and, and die. And so right on. I was amening mm. you that whole time. Yeah. I mean, when I was 16, this happened to me. I had, mm-hmm. I had to, I had, I was rushed to the house, but well, rushed. Um, we were poor. So my mom took me on the bus. I think we took a cab at least once, but I, she had to take me to the hospital. Um, and they wouldn't give me an x-ray until my mom put her foot down and said, I'm not leaving this hospital without y'all looking at my child. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, when they came back, they thought I had gallstones. I was 16. I had the doctor tell me to my face that when they went in to do, cause I, I, I got a scope done. So they stuck the camera down my throat. Um, come to find out I didn't have any gallstones, but my bile duct was inflamed. Um, and he said, we're going to take your gallbladder out anyway, even though there's nothing wrong with it. We're going to take it out anyway. And then he advised me to stop eating so much fried chicken. Ooh. I was 16. And I remember thinking, like, one, how do you know I eat fried chicken? And two, like, isn't there a rule against this that doctors aren't allowed to say these things, right? And so race absolutely plays a part, right? Not only does race play a part, but body size plays a part in the type of medical attention that you get. Like, you're not believed. I, My mom had to come back, you know, I think we visited the doctors two or three times before they actually did something, Um but they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't take they wouldn't take care of me. They didn't take my pain seriously. Um, and so, you know, it's a real thing that people face um, being in this space and and having to deal with um, the intersections of race and body size. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm hearing in my mind as you're talking, Joy, is that way that stigma acts as a moderating or mediating variable between these two elements that we think are, or we learn are correlated, that we're looking at obesity and all of these other health conditions, not understanding that the relationship between them could best be explained by the way that health providers use stigma to attribute more or less value to whoever they're seeing and the compounding impact of being marginalized by a system that is supposed to affect you will impact your health. It will impact you as a body in the field of psychology. We, we call that diagnostic overshadowing when someone shows up Mm -hmm. in front of us and we're like, I'm not going to see your depression. I'm just going to try to treat you for weight loss because your depression must be better explained by the fact that you're obese. And instead of treating the issue that actually needs care, we see the issue that we've learned to see as the most problematic without remembering that stigma influences what we have otherwise been led to believe is an objective field of treatment to be in healthcare. And it's not, it's not the agendas that we swim in culturally impact Mm -mm healthcare providers and shape what they learn is valuable or not valuable and impact the quality of care that people have access to. And we, as a healthcare, you know, I work in healthcare. It's important for us to examine our biases because it can be so insidious for us to think that we are these knights in shining armor helping people when what we're actually toting is rhetoric that is harmful to them. But it's insidious because we think we're doing something good by saying, well, I'm just trying to help you. You just need to, I just need to give you the tough love, or I just need to give you this news, or I'm actually treating the real problem. And we miss the way that this harmful rhetoric is actually compounding the suffering of the people who are seeking treatment. 
So I get, I feel, mm. I feel frustrated when I think about this and how, how many people's stories I've heard because I work in the eating disorder field a lot. How many people have gone to, have gone to their psychologist, have gone to a therapist asking for help around a family conflict, um, self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and they're told, I'm not going to. I'm not going to help you with that until we address your eating behaviors wow. and how, how minimizing, shaming, um, oppressive that is. And then it, it's, it just gets me so it boils my blood that the care providers think that they're doing the right thing and are missing mm-hmm. the people and are perpetuating the problem. And it is so easy for healthcare to get embroiled in the oppressive system and not even know that that's happening because they think they're doing right by people. And we just, we need to do better. Mm. We need to do and, better. And can we, can we also just go in and drag, uh, this holistic health movement out here too, because (laughs) (laughs) let's add it to the list because y'all got me fired up because I'm sitting here going like a lot of the, the, there's a lot of whole, like things that are called holistic in terms of health and wellness um, that is connected to people like, well, if you just change your mental mind then therefore this, Mm. all these physical things will go away. And if you just, you know, maybe uh, uh, like change your diet in this way, all your uh, emotional problems will go away. And I mean, I live in LA and I feel like that is very much a core tenet <laughs> of like, you know, folks who live out here is like, well, and, and I'm not saying that food can't, shouldn't be treated as medicine. I believe food, food can be medicine and it can be healing. Um, but I do think that we go to this other extreme and simply say, it's almost like a, a type of like self-help, like I'm just going to will this away type of, type of thing. And I feel like holistic medicine does a disservice to the real, like, real world problems that people are, are, are facing, or it gives an out rather than uh, simply addressing people's pain. Like we're talking about, I don't but know. Not I just, only an uh, out, but I think that we are reinforcing disordered eating behaviors under the name of wealth, uh, health and wellness Yeah. by claiming that something is for someone's health. We're actually mm-hmm. often peddling some orthorex- orthorexic eating behaviors, right? This rigidity around reinforcing the rigidity around food as a kind of access to moral purity and wellness is again, deeply embroiled in the stigma, the weight stigma that gets created that joy you were talking about, that we have this moralization of the fat body, which is reinforced when we say being well and having that mean you're eating this very restricted organic diet, like (laughs) usually only accessible to people who have the most finances. Uh, It's, it's all woven in together. Is there is there a place for thinking of obesity or fatness as 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 another symptom of other like if it's not causal of these other conditions but it is associated it's correlated um like i'm just in as you guys are talking about bias like please hear me i i love <laughs> i love um the impulse that I think we so often try to follow here at the liturgist, which is like 
noticing how people have been shamed, noticing how people have not been accepted for who they are in this moment and, and speaking to that and bringing that into the light and saying, you are perfect as you are in this moment. But is it, what I also keep wondering is, is there any kind of swing that can happen in a bias in a way that still is ignoring part of the puzzle that it's like, can you both, can we handle the tension of um, being perfectly okay as we are and maybe having something to do that to uh, address health holistically? Like, yes, how the holistic health movement has gone about it is fucked up in this way and this way. But are we throwing out any baby with the bathwater by just pointing that stuff out by just pointing out how the correlation is not causation. Are we missing something? Is there something about, um, is fatness a symptom in any way as well of some other thing? Are they correlate? How, as opposed, like is, is saying there is no causation. Um, is there any danger in that of, so I'll tell you about a study. There was a study, I believe, that was done in 2005, yeah. um, and it included people, what they call the fatosphere, right, which is kind of like it's an online resource of uh, various platforms and, and different associations for people who live in larger bodies. And they set this 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 thing up and they kind of had a chat where people could go and if they needed anything, they could kind of, you know, so if you kind of think about this as like a Facebook group, right? I go into the Facebook group. I'm like, I don't know where to find underwear in my size. Can somebody help me? And people would just put down resources of where they could go find things. And what they found after doing this research study is that the more people's bodies were embraced, the more they begin to do and participate in activities that everybody kept telling them were wellness activities, right? And so they were more likely to be active in their bodies once they found a safe space to be active in. They were more likely to participate mm. and eat different foods and try new things once the space that they were in was verified as being safe. Yeah. And so if we really, 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 if we really want to tackle this issue of fat phobia, what we got to learn how to do is to embrace people as themselves and then let them mm. navigate their way out however they see fit. So we could say all day, oh, yeah, well, fatness is associated with depression or depression is, a, is associated with fatness. But you won't know that until you actually love somebody for who they are. Mm. Maybe as you start to love them. They say, okay, well, I decided to participate in these actions. And then as a result, like, okay, maybe they started to be more active or maybe they changed some of the foods that they were eating. And maybe that presents, you know, that shows up in their body in a different way. Right. But we're still not claiming value um, saying that that smaller body is of more value than than the larger body. Right. Like there's um mm. there's there are ways to talk about fatness and to address fatness as it relates to every walk of life. Um, and it doesn't have to be on this moral scale of like what's a good body, what's not a good body. Um, there's ways to talk about holistic health and it doesn't have to be on this scale of like 
like kind of like what Hillary spoke about, like who who's pure and, you know, and and uh, and these things get you closer to, you know, I don't know, being oneness with yourself and and all of these other things. We live in a world where everybody is making choices. Everybody's trying to get it how they live. Right. I'm doing the best that I can trying to survive with what I have. Um, and a lot of what our culture speaks to, like when we talk about holistic health, when we talk about all of these things, to me, this is a bigger picture um, that kind of speaks about how we operate, particularly in this country as a whole. Right. We're a very individualistic uh, country. We believe in achievement over everything else. That's why everything is seen as achievements. Marriage is an achievement. Right. Education is an achievement. You getting a job is an achievement. Weight loss is an achievement. Like none of these things are just states of being. None of these things just allow you to kind of move through life without there being a value put on it or without a status being put on it. So one way that we can kind of tackle this is that we remove the status. Now, why that becomes problematic is because a lot of us have gained access to things based on our status. We don't want to let those statuses go. And that's not just based on, you know, body size. That's based on education. That's based on how much money you make. That's based on the neighborhoods that you live in, all of those things. And so when we start to talk about the ways that we can kind of hold you know, kind of hold these facts in place and really deal with the realities. I think that there's a way to do that. But that way to do that is going to cause people who already have statuses something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and oftentimes what we find is that the people who already have are not willing. Mm. <laughs> They're not willing to um, to massage out their own biases enough to share with someone else. Mm. Right. Because the moment I start saying that smaller bodies and larger bodies have the same value and not one is more attractive than the other, it's the smaller body people that feel offended. You understand what I'm saying? When poor people start saying, oh, it doesn't matter if I have money or not, that's not that's not what matters. Right. Um, I'm still valued as a person. It's the people who have money. Those are the people that are offended. Mm-hmm. And so we really got to start to ask ourselves and unpack those reasons as to why, right? Um, Because what we know is that encouragement and embracing people, um, I think it was, I don't know if it was William or someone spoke earlier about tough love. We could just call it love, right? Because love can encourage people. Love can push people. Um, If it's tough love, it's probably not love at all. Mm. Right. Come on. Like, but we got to learn how to get to a place to where we can embrace people as humans, as people. Right. And love them enough that we give them space to be themselves. Mm -hmm. And if at the end of the day that winds up that that space that we allot to them or the space that they take up is more space than others because of the size of their body. We got to learn to be okay Mm -hmm. with that. And as a culture, we're not Mm -hmm. we we haven't learned how to. um how to silence our voices when they're not needed, right? Like, it's not it's not a place for me to speak on somebody else's body. Why should I, right? Like, what, what skin in the game do I have as it relates to those things? But the way that we're taught is that, you know, we have freedom of speech and we can say whatever we want and all of these other things, you know? And, like, there's a scripture in the Bible that says all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. we got to learn mm-hmm. that just because we can do it doesn't mean that it's the best decision to do it. 
And I really feel like as we start to really love each other in genuineness, um, then it provides a space for us to unpack and we can see when it's us versus mm-hmm. when it's them. But we can also give space to be themselves. That's right. Right. Like we can give people space to actually live in a liberty and in, and in liberation um, without us having to chime in and say, OK, but did you think about right. Have you considered, you know, do you want to do this? Maybe you should try that. Like sometimes people don't need that. We got to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I, you know, when you're talking joy, I'm thinking about the, what I'm really hearing and really appreciate is the acknowledgement of the way that power in politics plays into what we have constructed as health. And I'm thinking about the importance of having this individualistic, maybe individualistic isn't the right word, phenomenological perspective of what it means to be healthy, to see the individual. And my, like when I think about meeting a person, instead of seeing a label and making decisions about who that person is, how valuable they are, um, if they're, you know, immoral, moral because of the size of their body, getting to know the person instead of seeing the seeing kind of what we've been constructed to think. And it makes me think about how health has looked so different in my life at different seasons based on what I need. So I know it's a little bit adjacent to what you're saying, but I, having had an eating disorder for, you know, 15 years, I made a vow at some point in the eating disorder, I will never eat McDonald's. And last year at Christmas, my husband and I were like, let's go through the McDonald's drive through And I hadn't really <laughs> thought about it as being this kind of victory, but other people would look at McDonald's and, and describe it as being abhorrent. And yet there was something about that that was a marker of just how much I'd healed and transformed. And so instead of seeing mm. McDonald's as healthy or not healthy, like what is the story mm. of the person? It makes me think of the, you know, the, the incredible like wise woman, Ruby sales. And she, uh, she asks, where does it hurt? Mm. Where does it hurt? Where is your pain? But also what do you need in order to be, in order to be well? And you get to tell me what you need in order to be well, instead of me deciding based on my biases. And like you said, how much skin I have in the game, I'm going to tell you what you need to be well. But if you can tell me where it hurts and I can hold you in that, And if you can tell me what you need to be well, and we can together make enough space for that to happen, I'm not so worried about what the CDC says. I'm Mm. seeing the the person and the way that health is so much more complex and so much more multifaceted than we've ever given it space for. I think I've said Mm. in other conversations elsewhere, Mm. what what if you have the single mom rushing home from work to get to the kids baseball game. And she's going through the drive through to make sure that she can be connected to him at this important sports event. Are you going to look at her food choice and say that that's unhealth? Are you going to look at it holistically and say, wow, this is a person Mm -hmm. who in the face of systems that are meant to keep her down has found a way to stay connected to the people that she loves. And is that going through the drive through the thing that we're going to demonize if that's the thing that we're going to demonize, we're missing the entire problem here, which is there's a system which keeps this woman from having enough space and finances and time 
to feed herself differently, perhaps in the way that she would choose just so that she can keep her relationships and connection and a roof over her head. So why are we thinking about health just as this physiological construct instead of what it means to be a whole person and respecting the agency and the complexity Mm. of a person who is in relationships, who is also a mind, who has needs that are situated in context? Like that's the kind of discussion around health that I want to have, not well is correlation, you know, how much, how much do we actually need to pay attention to that? And what are we missing if we dismiss it? Like, what does it mean to be whole? And can we give people autonomy in determining that? Hmm. Um, that is very beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, I have a question. Maybe we should have asked this earlier, but hey, no time like the present. Um, who or what <laughs> is considered fat? <laughs> Uh, I think that's a it's it's a great question because um, yeah, I think I've heard many different types of answers on this. Um, people I've heard people in different seasons of their life qu- describe themselves as fat, and in other seasons, no. Is fat something that you're fat because somebody else called it to you, or is there what is what is the are there boundaries on this, or is it a is it a fluid construct? I'm sincerely wondering. Yeah, so I think from from my perspective, a, a communicative perspective, I think fatness is a social construct um, that is often negotiated between people in conversation with one another. Uh, and then it shows up very structural and institutionalized, right? And so you may have somebody who is a size 8 or a size 12 who has been called fat um, by their loved ones, and, and they've grown up with that idea that this is what fatness is. If this is my size... Um, and everybody else is saying that I'm fat and these are the conversations that we're having, then I'm under the impression that I live in a fat body. Um, But once that person steps outside of their house, right, then you are confronted with what fatness has been defined um, both structurally and institutionally, right? And so now um, a size 12 person is not considered fat outside of their home. In fact, they're probably considered on a very low scale, like they can still shop wherever they want to, um, they don't have to worry about buying an extra seat for an airplane. Um, you know, the doctor, nine times out of 10, they don't run up against the same barriers as it relates to their body size, right? And so I think fatness, depending on, you know, how you're looking at it, I think that there's these, there are micro definitions of fatness that people are um, having um, through conversation with one another and they're learning about their bodies and how the world sees them. And then we have this very much um, defined uh, definition, I guess. There's a, there's a very clear definition about how we see fatness outside of that in society. Um, if you can ride a roller coaster, right? Like there's weight limits on those things, right? And so there's a certain, somebody's determining where that cutoff is, Um, and people tend to know that if I can look over and I can say, oh, the weight limit is 220 pounds, I can't ride this, right? I shouldn't buy that bike. I shouldn't do these things. And so society as a whole, people who are making um, the rules are then telling us what fatness is. And then if you look into the medical field, right, you have who's considered quote unquote normal weight, who's considered overweight, right? And then who's considered obese, these are all definitions of, of fatness um, and they change. They absolutely, they change over time. So it's not just the individuals who are, who are making those decisions, but then also society. Um, there are certain, you know, 
certain seat widths that have changed over time, right? Where people are saying, okay, we'll make seats that are large enough to fit these size people mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, um, the 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 change to the to the BMI uh, scale that kind of happened overnight. I think it was like in 1998. So um, people went to sleep normal weight and woke up overweight, <laughs> right? Because they changed because <laughs> they changed the guidelines. Um, and so you know you have these different things that are happening. But to me, fatness is a is a social construct, um, and people typically know when they're fat because uh, the world does not let you not know um, <laughs> when you're fat. Um, and so, I mean, that's what I would say. And so, I mean, and I think that we have this conversation a lot when we are like within fat communities, when somebody that, that is a, a smaller fat shows up and they're a size 16 and they're like, I can't find anything to wear. Right. And then you have people who are size 30, like, no, you can't find anything to wear that you like. Right. Like you can still shop at all the stores. You can still get those things. I, on the other hand, can't really find things to wear. Right. And so there's there's this spectrum of fatness, too, um, and about accessibility and all of those different things. And so I don't think that fatness fits in like a cookie cutter type definition. I think it does really depend on who people are are in conversation with. Oh, excuse me. And then the lives that they live outside of their homes. In society. I feel you. Because when I went home for Thanksgiving, my grandma sure called me fat. I was like, Grandma. Grandma. <laughs> Grams, Grams have no filters. None. I will just say that. It doesn't even... No filters <laughs> at all. I love my love my gram to pieces, but like she holds no bars. She'd tell you real quick, oh, they're just getting fat. Just yeah. look at them. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is too much. And I'm so this interested in much. the response to that, though, because if we're moving back to how we use language and the shame around fatness to reinforce weight stigma, well, like, what's the ideal response? Like, oh, thank you. Or like, okay. Like, yeah. when we're thinking about, <laughs> like, grams having no filters, but also trying to deconstruct the way that that our response to that perpetuates something in us or other people. Like, what... What should we say back? That is a great question. Because I never know what to say. I'm like, why are y'all talking about my weight? <laughs> like, yeah. why? I don't talk yeah. about any of y'all's weight <laughs> at all. Or it's And sometimes that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes that's the answer. Now, grams, they're a little bit different. I pick my battles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to. <laughs> Depends on who your gram is. <laughs> Depends on who your gram is. Like, do you, do you really want to go down this? Or do, are you right. just going to, like, brush it off? <laughs> Whatever, Graham. Right. You know, but like cousins, aunts, and uncles, hold up. Wait a minute. Like, why are we having this Mm -hmm. discussion about Joy and Joy's body, Joy's hips? Yeah. Like, y'all mind your own hips, mind your own plates. That's not what we're here for today. Listen. That sort of thing. My Grams has survived everything from the Great Depression to Donald Trump and everything in between. (laughs) So, you're right. Like, I'm going to pick my battles on that one. Right. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's not with grams, but I hear so many parents talking about like because of my work in body image, talking about how to have other conversations, how to have conversations with their kids about when kids 
say things, use commentary on the playground or what happens when other people comment on their kids' bodies and these awkward social spaces where we don't have enough proximity to someone like cousins, aunts, uncles, where we're like, what's going on? And we don't like, is this the kind of place that we engage in shaping culture by how we respond or, or is this the person that we pass off? And I think that for people who are trying to be conscious of the way that language perpetuates weight stigma, there, I think there are some really important conversations to be had, but we don't have the social skills necessarily to know. Like, how do I say to this stranger on the playground, hey, that that doesn't feel good when you say that. And here's what, here's why that's not okay. Or you don't, don't do that. You just punch body. them back. Oh, oh that's <laughs> the solution. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You okay. said what? Okay. <laughs> <All right>. okay. <laughs> that's how you I got into but fights I- on the schoolyard doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've also heard people talk about how they normalize this type of talk with their children. Mm -hmm. Um, So when those instances come up and people are like, you're fat and they're like, yeah, like, okay, I know. I mean, I've heard other people flip it like that's all you got. Like, (laughs) oh, boy, like another fat joke. Here we go again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think some of that because it takes the sting away Mm -hmm. um, when fatness is just like. It's the pun. Like, that's all people have to say. You're fat. Everybody laughs. And it's like, okay, is that it? Like, here we go again. Mm. Um, It's the insult of all insults. Like, you don't think that I looked at myself in the mirror and knew that I was fat before I came here? Like, you're not telling me something that I don't know. Yeah. Um, And it does. It kind of, it, it, um, it leaves people without weapons. Mm. And then they don't know what to say. Um, And so sometimes that, you know, sometimes that's, that's I've seen, you know, I've heard people talk about that. Um, another big thing that happens within the fat community is like the reclaiming of the word fat. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, if I call myself fat, you calling me fat ain't really going to make that big of a difference. You take the power um, away from it. Yeah. Right. And so there's just um, there's you know, there's there's this sense of like normalizing bodies. Um, promoting body diversity um, when when your kids are home. Uh, so that then they then they have the answers or they at least have something to say when these things are happening. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that that's 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 another conversation mm-hmm. probably for another day <laughs> in the ways that parents like can equip their kids to 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 kind of start to change generationally the way that bodies are seen and confronted because um, they do need the tools to talk about those things. Mm. I say teach them how to read. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fat, but have you eaten lately? Look at you. You're so thin. Like, you just go. <laughs> just hit, hit them right I, back. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I don't, not co-signing that. I don't know exactly if that's an effective, <laughs> that's a, an effective way. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, kids, kids are, I mean, I think like, you know, living through childhood, I think looking back on it, kids are tough. Mm-hmm. They're just like rough and rugged just like okay grams don't have filters but neither does billy yeah like six-year-old billy has no filters like and he don't even know half the time he done said something wrong that's the that's the bad part about it's like billy's just being billy and so living through elementary school into middle school Mm. <sighs> yeah. Listen, you were speaking I mean, yeah. my my whole life because uh, people think I'm bad, but I have a dad named Billy. He's bad. He's really bad. That man ain't got no filters. Um. So 
Thank you for that reference. It was on the nose. <laughs> it was for my life. I was like, yeah, Billy's bad. Ooh, Billy's close. real bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I loved uh, what you were saying before, Dr. Joy, about, um, and what and what you had added, Hillary. It It reminds me of this thing I've been practicing called existential kink that is basically kind of it's it's shadow work it's picking out something that you don't like about yourself or that you don't like that you and it's it's a it's a full embrace of um and in the practice it's like you're not actually loving it to change it but in the process of loving it things tend to change so like i love the sort of the paradox at the heart of seeing how health is like how complex health is and even as a construct how it's it's you can't divorce it from a person's story i love how you're talking about that hillary um and the paradox in fully accepting yourself as you are or someone else as they are how that is actually the most powerful way to become more healthy um, in any way that, that like it, the, the saying yes to what you keep trying to push away is actually often the thing that kind of takes its power away that, um, as soon as you're not fighting that dragon anymore, it kind of like solves itself, however it solves itself. Um, and so I don't know, it just, it, it's that really rung true to me as, as a, um, and how it's related to the spirituality that we talked to on this podcast is like the acceptance of, um, I, I think it's physical health, it's emotional health, it's all the, um, spiritual health. However you are in the moment, my, you know, what Hillary and I were having a conversation before this conversation about introversion, uh, about like loving kind of the quirks of your personality and, um, I don't wish I was more extroverted like I used to. I don't have this like, God, I, why am I so quiet or shy? Or, and that like acceptance of my introversion actually takes some of its power away and I don't have to always be super introverted. Like there's a, that paradox at the heart of it. Um, so like loving, loving yourself in whatever state you're at, um, as the means to like whatever health needs to look like for you in the future, I think is a beautiful thing that I've heard in both of what we were saying. Was that an accurate thing? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, you know, w w the beginning of what you said and you talked about shadow work and how like embracing that thing that you don't like. Um, I think for a lot of fat people, that's where work towards fat liberation and fat acceptance happens because they've been taught not to like themselves in totality. Right. So sitting with yourself, mm -hmm. unpacking those things about who you are and how you see yourself as an individual and fully embracing that often leads to this change of acceptance and liberation. Right. That may not manifest itself outwardly, but mentally you're in a better place. Emotionally, you're in a better place. Uh, and so I think you speaking to those things really do highlight uh, in a lot of ways, the lived experiences that a lot of people who are marginalized and stigmatized their identities, they live with that. 
and to get to a place of acceptance, like we're all doing that shadow work. Like we're all doing that work uh, in hopes of embracing the thing that's been rejected, right? That kind of brings us back to this place full circle where we can love ourselves and then find space to be ourselves. Because I think that's what you're really talking about when you create that safe space by loving yourself. Now you can just be you and be okay with that. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. Where can we find out more about your work? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as Fresh Out the Cocoon. Um, and you can visit drjoycox.com. Um, so there's no, so it's just one word, drjoycox.com um, to find out about the work that I do as well as um, any of the other events that I have coming up. Oh, and I just wrote a book. I don't know if I should say that. I forget this so much. I'm sorry. So Fat Girls and Black Bodies Creating Communities of Our Own was released September 29th. Um, and you can find that. Um, you can Google it. Um, but Ping- Penguin Random House um, is is the link that will take you to all the links of where you want to purchase. Although I recommend that you purchase from independent bookstores. Congratulations yeah. on the book. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Joy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. William and Hillary and all the patrons. Much love, everybody. Thanks for being here. <laughs>